Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll, begin, we'll be beginning a look at The World Jones Made. So The World Jones Made was first published in 1956. Now, if you've been paying attention, I've been trying to do the works of Philip K. Dick in, in roughly chronological order. I don't know like exactly by day, but I know by month when these works were first published in magazines or, or about his books. Uh, and if you've been following the stories, you'll know we're still kind of in the middle of 1954. This will be the second time I've kind of been jumping this chronological order simply to change things up a little bit. I, you know, there's still a lot of stories till we get to really the first novel. In fact, I cheated already with Solar Lottery, um, you know, a couple months ago. So I'm going to do it here. This will probably be the last time I'm going to do that. So after this, I'll just continue to run through the stories until I get to, I believe it's Cosmic Puppets will be the next one. So, but anyways, we'll do this. We'll just jump out of the way in this one. It, in a way, it doesn't matter because it was actually written in 1954 uh, and Dick sat on it. Um, in fact, his novel, this is the second novel he published after Solar Lottery, but it was like the eighth he wrote. And that includes some book some novels that weren't even published, I think, to like a few years ago, some of his mainstream works. And then like you got books like Vulcan's Hammer, which was written in 1960, you know, at the same time, right before, it may have came out even after uh, The Man in the High Castle, which of course is one of his distinctive signature works. But Vulcan's Hammer is, is far from that. It's one of his most maligned. Well, one reason for that is Vulcan's Hammer was written you know, like back in 52 or 53. It was one of his first uh, efforts to write a, a longer piece of fiction. Um, Dr. Futurity, Cosmic Puppets, all these works that weren't published later actually predated The World Jones Made. So th there's a bit of a downside to doing the chronological order of publication anyways. So in that sense, I think it's okay to cheat. But mostly this is just to, to kind of change things up a little bit. Now, in general, The World Jones Made is about three things, it seems to me. First, it is about the relationship between values and the state, and more specifically between democracy and social order. One of the major themes of this novel is this concept of relativism, uh, which is kind of a ruling ideology, but it's even hard to call it that. It, it's kind of the policy of the state to prevent wars in the future prevent wars like the Second World War and the, and the Third World War, which is in the, the history on, in the timeline of the novel. There's a Third World War caused by ideological conflicts. So the kind of the world government that emerges after this Third World War focus, is focusing on rehabilitating the earth. And part of that is to move away from ideology. And so they impose this philosophy called relativism which basically holds that no one should be able to express their ideas in any distinctive way unless they can back it up with data at the moment. So basically opinions become illegal, right? So or in a sense values become illegal because those aren't really things one can prove. And then they, they run in contracts to the state. And Dick's not, you know, stupid about this. He realizes that this is kind of a, in practice it's ridiculous, but as a philosophy it's guiding this society wherein it's going to motivate several of the characters. So this whole theme of what to do about people's um, interpret you know, their values even if they're off the wall or contrary to the majority destructive you know what does the state do about those ideas i mean it's kind of about freedom of speech almost which I, i'm sure there's things we can say about contemporary politics at least in the united states about free speech uh, what do we do with the resurgent radical right wing and Nazi rallies and all that, um, are, do they fall under free speech or are there something that should be suppressed in the name of social order and just justice, broader justice or self-defense even, as some people say. Anyway, so that that's one theme. The second theme is a little bit more science fiction-y and that's about precognition. 
And then specifically, we have a character here who is limited to one year precognition. So it's given away, away a lot of the plot of the novel, but it's revealed early enough, so it doesn't matter. The character Jones has exactly one year precognition. In a sense, he lives every moment a second time, once from memory and once as experience. It's, uh, it's kind of a, the timeline is fixed in the future, so there's not much he can do to change it. He knows what's going to happen, though. And there's kind of a chicken or egg problem. Does he choose actions because he knew they were going to happen? Or is he kind of fated to do these things no matter what? And just knows it. Now, what he's trying to do here is, in a sense, he's playing with an idea of someone like Hitler. Someone like Hitler who was able to get into power quite brilliantly. Uh, use, you know, he knew how to manipulate public opinion. He knew how to manipulate the d democratic system that was emerging in Germany after the First World War. He was quite uh, effective at doing that. Um, however, he never seemed to be able to look far enough to know the ultimate consequences of his actions, and therefore he failed. Uh, now, this whole idea might be giving Hitler a little bit too much credit as a long-term strategist, yet... That's the, the idea. In fact, he had mentions it directly in the book. He, I mean, one of the characters asked this question, was Hitler a precog? And one of the other ones says, yeah, I think so a little bit. So I think that's Dick sort of suggesting that maybe Jones is a Hitler-esque figure. And what happens in the, over the course of the novel is, yes, he's able to use his foresight to get into power, but as he goes farther along and gets into power and starts making decisions, the long-term consequences of those decisions start to close in on him and eventually his failure is inevitable. It's kind of like to take the World War II example. If you just look at, if, if you, it's like in the winter of 1941, early 1941, and you think, I'm going to invade Russia. It's going to turn out fine. You know, you look a year ahead of time, it might seem to be working out okay. Had he just been able to look another six months forward, he would have known that would have been a, a strategic blunder of epic proportions. So it's a bit of a thought experiment on the success and eventual failure of someone like with disability. Now, the third thing this novel is about is something I've talked about before in my in my essay on on Dick's view of history, and we're still very much in the period of Dick's views on history that I talked about in that novel. I, as I said in that, or not that novel, in that essay. As I said in that essay, he does change by the time he writes Martin Time Slip and Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. His view on the frontier has fundamentally been altered. But in this period, he's still got this kind of optimistic idea about the future of humanity in the frontier and the necessity of a frontier as a springboard for human progress. And this novel gets to that. And here we find this a bit of a contradiction because Dick is, on the one hand, very pro-frontier, it seems. He thinks there's a future for humanity in the frontier, and he thinks it's something that can get that can break humanity out of some stagnation it's in, in this relativist uh, ideology. Yet the one who advocates it is Jones, who he even sort of admits in the text of the novel is he's comparing to Hitler. So, you know, and there are fascist elements in this novel. There are like fascist gangs and, you know, people using violence and xenophobia and all these other themes. In fact, that should be a fourth theme here is xenophobia. I should have mentioned it right away. So let's put that down as a fourth thing. This novel is also about xenophobia and it's about the other and the outsider and how we... In a world that wants to expand, perhaps, or, you know, in a planet that wants to venture out, how do we interact with other people, right? Other cultures out there. Now, the culture they interact with is not, on the surface, uh, a threat. In fact, it's very similar to the creatures we see in Martians Come in Clouds, kind of these massive one-cell organisms that just kind of plop on Earth and, and land there, called floaters. Yet, they're more than what they seem. And the human's attitude towards them is full of hatred and xenophobia and violence. And there's some quite disturbing scenes there. All right, so that, that's kind of my introduction to the world Jones made. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is talk through the chapters, uh, at least the first half, because I'm going to break this up into a couple episodes at least. I did Solar ladder Lottery over six, but I actually sat down to do the math of how long this series would take if I did six episodes in each novel and it was something like three years and I don't think I want to spend that long on 
of Philip K. Dick. Um, of course, I have a lot more fun with my other series on, on American writers in general because I've kind of been doing Philip Dick for a, for quite a while. You know, but, you know, so it's not something I want to spend three years on, really. Um, you know, and especially there's no reason I can't do slightly longer episodes. So I'll probably try to aim for two episodes per per, per novel. So what I'll try to do is is talk through about, well, for World Jones Mating, I'll talk about through half the chapters in this episode. And then in the next one, I'll look at the last 10 episodes and then try to do a thematic summary of of the book. Okay, so chapter one, we're in the early 21st century, and, and humans have mutated, it seems, and they're unable to exist on Earth's normal atmosphere. And they're living, there's a small group of mutants, they're living in a place called the Refuge. It's a controlled environment that's very suitable to their biological needs. It's compared often as a womb, so sometimes it's called the Refuge, sometimes it's called a womb. And both of these concepts are important, because on the one hand, it's presented as a place of salvation for these people who can't live, can't breathe normal earth air. But it's also a womb in the sense it's the birthplace of a new type of humanity. Now that's not entirely clear till the end of the novel, but I'll establish it now that it's a womb for a new birth of the of the human race or the birth of a post-human. But it's also compared to a womb due to its environment and the confinement the mutants feel, they feel quite stuck there. And one of the mutants, a man, you know, Lewis, and man we should use in quotes here because he seemed to be post-humans, they try to talk the others into an escape, believing that their confinement is all a fraud, it's all a lie, they're basically just prisoners. But Frank, an older mutant, comments that there are, they are superior entities, and yet their previous attempts have failed. Lewis eventually convinces the other three mutants to try to escape with him. So it's Vivian, Gary, Dieter, and Lewis. These are these four of this group of like seven or eight mutants. They're going to escape. Now, meanwhile, you have Dr. Rafferty. He's kind of the one who heads this lab, who oversees these mutants. He runs the refuge, and he's with this FedGov, so federal government, FedGov. This is the world government. The FedGov agent, Doug Cusack. Now, Doug Cusack is our main character here. So we get introduced to these mutants, but they're not really part of the story. Um, they're there is kind of a thematic um, twist, a thematic point. But Doug Cusack is our main character, so we meet him here. And they actually observe this escape attempt where they, they kind of let the mutants go out and they, and they quickly succumb to the Earth's natural environment. And then they're picked up by a van, a, basically a car comes and picks them up like Rafferty knew would happen because like like it's been established they can't breathe normal earth atmosphere now and so it's a pretty banal escape attempt and the four mutants are returned brought back I think they passed out and they kind of just were picked up as they were passed out now as this is going on Doug Cusack and Rafferty discuss the leadership of Floyd Jones and his fascist youth brigades Cusack mentions how he met Jones before Jones's own rise to power. All right, so the opening passage of the novel, in fact, the very first page of the very first chapter, talks about this womb, this refuge. Quote, the temperature of the refuge varied from 99 degrees Fahrenheit to 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Steam lay perennially in the air, billowing and drifting sluggishly. Geysers of hot water spurted, and the ground was a shifting surface of warm slime compounded from water, dissolved minerals, and fungoid pulp. The remains of lichens and protozoa colored and thickened the scum of moisture that dripped everywhere over the wet rocks and sponge-like shrubbery. The various utilitarian installations. A careful backdrop had been painted, a long plateau rising from a heavy ocean. Beyond doubt, the refuge was modeled after the womb. The semblance couldn't be denied, and nobody denied, had denied it. End quote. Now, you know, when you read this and then you're not going to get the payoff for this scene until like chapter 20, or 19 or 20, of the, until the very end of the novel. So it's almost like a trick or you're not quite sure why Dick put it in until you get to the end. You think maybe maybe it's just a way to introduce Doug Cusack, our main character, or to set up this flashback scene. But then why really do that? Why not just start with, you know, 26 what I've, and I'm not sure how many years before it was, but you know, it's a decade, more than a decade before. Why not just start there? 
and I mean that it becomes clear towards the end, but it, it's a nice little gimmick uh, Dick uses. All right, so to chapter two. So, okay, so it's actually seven years before the events of the first chapter. It's 1995. So the flashback begins in 1995, but the kind of the contemporary timeline of the novel um, is 2002. So this chapter describes the first meeting of this FedGov, Doug Cusack, and Floyd Jones. Doug Cusack is then a very minor arm of the security arm of the, the sec pool, the security arm of the interior department. So they, he's part, he's just basically an FBI agent, essentially, in, in this new government that emerged after the war. His main purpose is to enforce relativism. And at this point, it's still a relatively new philosophy. You see a lot of people openly disobeying it, a lot of people not, not liking it. Even the person who becomes Kusek's wife often says how she doesn't like um, relativism at all and she doesn't really read the books. There's kind of a, a textbook that's associated with relativism, one important book that, you know, I, it seems it was written before the war, but it became kind of canon after the war as the way, as the method of avoiding war in the future. Basically, not, in, not taking your own ideas too seriously, or at least not enforcing them as truth you can have an opinion you know but you can't say it now technically relativism means you can't even say like this this meatloaf tastes good i mean that is an unjustifiable opinion now people do that of course so they're not rounding up everyone for this they're really trying to target people who are politically dangerous or are going to start something now the key point of relativism is you have to be able to back up your facts with evidence and that's important and they're only part of this novel. So Cusack just observed some of the entertainment of the carnival. And it's mostly made up of mutants. So after the war, you had all these mutants that came out. So he runs into some prostitutes and they're trying to solicit him. And he gets away from that. But there's a scene there where Dick has to describe these naked ladies soliciting um, customers. Now, Cusack notices Jones' fortune-telling booth, and it's a very pathetic fortune-telling booth. And even Cusack thinks, why would anyone go to this kind of fortune-teller? It was, like, really run down. It was shambles. There was no effort at really advertising. All it is is, like, a, a very cheap sign that says he can predict the future of humanity. And when he goes down and sits down and curious about this guy, that's what Jones essentially says. is like, I can only give you the future of humanity. And only for one year. He can't give individual readings, right? So people normally go to these carnival booths to get a reading because they want to know what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to their career or their future. But, you know, Jones says, I can't tell you that. I can only tell you the future of humanity. What he actually can tell is what he can see in the future. So, like, what, whatever's news in a year, he would know, or maybe big global events he would know. So he actually would, it would be impossible for him to know Cusack's future unless he you know, was with Cusack. So he can't, they can't get these individual readings. Now, curious about this, Cusack eventually pays for the reading. Now, Jones is very irritable and grumpy, and he's just not the kind of person you'd expect to be this showman, because usually these fortune tellers are, you know, performers, they're actors, right? They're, they cold read people. So you'd expect them to have a little charisma. Jones doesn't have any of this. He gets them only two minutes, and he makes two predictions. Um, very quickly in a two-minute period. The first prediction is that a nationalist named Ernst Saunders will win the next election for council chairman. Now, at the time, this Saunders was like nowhere on the political radar. So if, in fact, this person was elected, it would be a big prediction. The second is that drifters, not floaters, I think I've had floaters before, drifters would become a major issue in the future. And, these, and that these drifters are going to prove to be beings from another planet. Now, this second prediction piques Cusack's interest because he already knows of the drifters from an internal FedGov report, but no one else should know about them. So this proves sort of that he's able to make a prediction. Now, this becomes a really important political point in the early part of this novel because relativism can only be enforced against someone like this if they're telling lies or if they're telling opinions as fact. But he's telling a fact as fact. It's a fact he shouldn't know. It's a fact no one should know outside of the government. 
In fact, he even predicts that they're beings, which I think no one in the government quite knew yet. They just knew these things were coming from space. So Cusack leaves after this, and he plans to report Jones as a possible violator of, of relativism. Now, for me, the highlight of this of this chapter is really the description of the carnival, the description of the performers, and kind of the playfulness Dick has with the with the mutants. And here we actually have two chapters in which mutants are on the first are on the forefront, and we see the great diversity of types of mutants, right? And with any kind of mutations, some are just like your third arm or your third eye, or you know, some other kind of physical abnormality that's fine for a carnival, but maybe not enough to make you a post-human. But then you have these other mutations, like the ones in the womb and Floyd Jones, that really seem to lead us to conclude that we're really talking here about post-humans, people who have experiences so different from the rest of humanity that they're really almost a different species. Okay, chapter three. Doug Cusack returns to the FedGov uh, headquarters, the security arm of the FedGov headquarters in Baltimore, after his initial encounter with Floyd Jones. And this exposed Jones's precognitive abilities because he knew things that the government knew to be true, but uh, people in the public shouldn't have known. So he files this report and he discusses relativism with his colleague, Max Kaminsky. So Kaminsky is going to be another major character in the novel. Um, and then there's the security director who's less important, but his, he's kind of, his name is Pearson. Now he is an interesting figure to head this department because he's theoretically quite strict. He insists on relativism being enforced, but he's also very loose in practice. So he realizes that relativism only works if it has some give and take. It can't be an authoritarian system. So he asks Cusack, uh, and you're going to report it? You're going to recommend action against some entertainer trying to make a few dollars reading poems in a traveling circus? Overzealous kids like you? Don't you understand how serious this is? Don't you know what a conviction means? Loss of civil rights, confinement, and forced labor camp. He shook his head. So you can make a good impression on your superiors. Some harmless fortune teller is going to eat, get the axe. With controlled dignity, Kusak said, But I think it's violation of the law. Everyone violates the law. When, you, when I tell you olives taste terrible, I'm technically violating the law. When somebody else says dogs are man's best friend, that's illegal. It goes on all the time. We're not interested in that. So that's um, this character. And we see that in practice, this system is really meant to target people who are going to be political dissidents. Cusack's report to Jones th on Jones, though, does seem to show that he has high-level information about the true nature of drifters. And this shocks Pearson, because no one else should know this. And if Jones really is a precog, He's not violating relativism because he's just simply speaking the truth about future events. So there's no way the government can suppress or regulate what Jones says or does under the law as long as he doesn't say anything that's not true. And if he knows what the future is, how can you know what he's saying is not true unless you're actually in the future? In some cases, the government may have information that others don't have. But on any other thing, you know, you have no way of proving it's an opinion or a prophecy. I guess that's the that's probably the proper term here. So chapter four. After this report by Doug Cusack, Floyd Jones is placed under surveillance by the security police. And that's all they can really do. When Jones's prophecy that the unknown politician Ernst T. Saunders of the Nationalist Party would win the 1995 election to chair the general council, that became the point where they couldn't deny Jones's ability and they bring him in for questioning. Now, meanwhile, Doug Cusack is transferred to Denmark during this period of time when Jones is under surveillance. So he makes this report and then he just goes on with his work, right? He's transferred to Denmark and there he meets his future wife, Nina Longstrom. She's an artist and she's skeptic of relativism, as you might expect artists would, would be. They value opinions and personal expression and that's kind of their bread and butter. So their whole the, the whole job of an artist is to kind of express one's opinions. And that's really not legal under relativism. So she's got a kind of an internal hostility towards this. Eventually they get married and they're on their honeymoon, preparing their new house when the report comes in that Jones has been brought in for questioning. 
And this forces Cusack and Longstrom to cut their honeymoon short, and they return to Baltimore. And they decide to go to Baltimore together, because it might be a long trip. And I think it, literally they were like working on like painting their their house when they get the call. Cusack informs his wife that you know because he's been getting these reports and he he's on the he's in the know, but that Jones' profile is rising ever since he became a minister in a new religious movement. So he he went on from being a carnival performer to actually becoming like a a traveling religious preacher. He'd provide prophecies about future events with aliens and future encounters with aliens. And while on a trip to Baltimore, they discuss the morality of relativism and state surveillance of opinions. And here we get some of the backdrop of what led to this, this philosophy and this ruling ideology. I guess ideology is the wrong term. It's, it's almost an anti-ideology. But they discuss it. And Cusack argues that the ideologies of the mid-20th century were much, much worse and caused much more harm than anything relativism could cause. Yeah, relativism means some people go to forced labor camps all right, get their civil liberties shut down, but you're not going to get, he would argue, something like the Holocaust. Six million people killed or world wars or nuclear war, that kind of stuff comes out of ideology. And so the whole point of relativism is really not to prevent individual expression, but to prevent war and violence and and systems that really take away, you know, not only human life, but human liberty. And he goes on to say, as, as hard as the law may be, it's very rare for incarcerating people, right? People like Jones, you know, don't usually get arrested and sent to the labor camp. It's really reserved for the real people who are a danger. So this is an important section kind of setting up the, the philosophy of relativism. Kusek says, security is the lesser of two evils. I say evils, of course. You and I know there's no such thing as evil. The glass of beer is evil at six in the morning. A dish of mush much, must look like hell around eight o'clock at night. To me, the spectacle of demagogues spending, sending millions of people to their death, wrecking the world with holy wars and bloodshed, tearing down whole nations to put up some religious or political truth is obscene, filthy. Communism, fascism, Zionism, they're the opinions of absolute individuals forced on whole continents. It has nothing to do with the sincerity of the leaders or their followers. The fact that they believe it makes it even more obscene. The fact that they can kill each other and die voluntarily over meaningless verbalisms. You see the reconstruction crews. You know we'll be lucky if we ever rebuild. And this is a reminder of just how far they have yet to go in repairing the world from the previous war. So later, uh, back in Baltimore, when they return to get to Baltimore, Cusack, Max Kaminsky, and Pearson are all questioning Jones. Jones is confident that he'll be released in three days, and of course he knows this because he's a precog. And Jones exchanged a parable with Cusack about a, a run on a bank, which exposes the danger of an unknown prophecy, right? Of course, an unproven prophecy. Of course, if, if there's a run on the bank, you know, because someone pronounces that the bank's going to go bankrupt, that hurts everyone, right? So you, a prophecy is very dangerous, is what it was. And although Jones speaks the parable, it is Cusack, it's, it is Cusack's story, and this kind of, again, shows his precognitive abilities. He knew the story Cusack was going to tell before he told it. But Jones also reveals that he's fearful of his abilities and where it will lead him. It, it's almost like, how would you describe this? Like, you're really myopia. There's a myopia here with Jones's ability, right? Imagine you're walking in a in a you know in a area in, in some area, and it's got cliffs and mountains and hills, and you don't quite know. And you can see ahead. You can see ahead a little ways. Let's say you know two yards or something, and you and you're running, right? You can't see far enough ahead to know if you can run off a cliff or something, right? And that's why Jones is fearful. You can see it far enough ahead to be confident only in the short term, but anything longer term, he doesn't know where he's going to, um, what's going to happen to him. So this is what's fearful. And the other thing fearful about it is he, he doesn't seem to have able to ability, the ability to control the future. He just knows what is going to happen. The future is sort of written. It's, it's already put down. It's not something that could be altered or tweaked in, in this, this version of precognition. 
Chapter 5. The interrogation of Floyd Jones in the Baltimore offices of the FedGov Secret Service continue. Jones explains that the things he experiences are the past to him and cannot be changed. Security Director Pearson questions his ability. You know, is it like seeing a movie more than once? And Jones sort of says, yeah, that's kind of what it is. But he wants to understand why Jones doesn't appreciate his talents more. Now, in fact, some of the agents even say, well, you can work for us. You can aid FedGov in the reconstruction project. We need someone like you to do that. And Jones scoffs at this idea, calling it short-sighted. And here's where he gives a major speech. This is a speech where we perhaps want to be sympathetic with Jones. It's, it's, it's hard to be by the time you get through the novel, but there's moments in which you're like, yeah, I think Jones might be onto something here. And when, he, so he's, when he's given this job offer, he, he really is offended by this. And here's what he says. You're wasting your time. It's the drifters that matter. And Kusak asked, why? He said, because there's a whole universe. You spend your time rebuilding this planet. My God, we could have a million planets, new planets, untouched planets, systems of them, endless resources. And you sit around trying to remelt old scrap, pack racks, misers, hoarding and fingering your miserable pile. We're overpopulated. We're undernourished. One more habitable world will solve all that. Like Mars? Kusak inquired softly. Like Venus? Dead, empty, hostile worlds. I don't mean those. What do you mean then? We got scouts crawling all around the system. Show us one place we can live. Not here, angrily Jones dismissed the solar system. I mean out there. Centaurus or Sirius, any of them. Jones here is inspired by the drifters who seem to be aggressively colonizing the cosmos. He says the drifters are here to colonize Earth and are not just random passing life forms. After the interview, Doug Cusack and Pearson discuss Cusack's new wife and her feelings about his career. And then they ponder whether Adolf Hitler was a precog. And I already alluded to this discussion. You know, was he someone like Jones? And they debate also how someone could assassinate or essentially kill off someone like Jones. And it seems very difficult to do. You'd have to basically step by step block him in from all sides it's almost like you know the best chess player can still be beaten right and he might know he's going to be beaten but it takes a long time of building up the moves and blocking it in until you know the king can't escape and it's just a matter of then going through the final moves to to slay him it doesn't you know in those last moves it doesn't matter that the master chess player is the you know can see ahead four or five turns right you know his end is inevitable so finally, in this chapter, Pearson confesses that drifters have already landed on Earth, and this confirms again the truth of Jones' statement, and this makes it impossible to arrest him as a violator of relativism. So chapter six. Now this is all, this chapter is all Floyd Jones's backstory, and, and we get a little bit of his backstory in this one short chapter. So Floyd Jones is waiting his release from police custody. He knew this would come. And while waiting, he thinks back on his past, and he thinks of the development of his talents. Jones was born in 1977, and since a baby, he could see one year into the future. In fact, he apparently could, he knew he would, like he understood being born when he was still in the womb. He could not cry like ordinary children, or he would not cry like ordinary children. He learned to speak at an incredibly young age. And sometime in his childhood, the first bomb struck the American West, not far from his hometown in Greeley, Colorado. Now, this is uh, this this means he got his ability before the bomb, so it's not a mutation caused by the radiation. When he was ten, well, so here's what actually happened. So he experiences the bombings a year before they're actually bombed, or he remembers them, or, or, or kind of goes through them. So he actually experiences the war twice. At 14, Jones begins a voyage across the war-devastated America. Eventually, he gets drafted into the military, but he quickly deserts, and he meets a man named Hinshaw, who sells magnetic belts as a traveling salesman. This is one of Dick's favorite characters, is the traveling salesperson. And Jones convinced Hyde to go into business with him as a gambler. 
Uh, in fact, Jones more or less says, we are going to be in business together and there's nothing you can do about it. But as a partnership was apparently close, short-lived. So that's what we get about Jones's backstory. It's, it's, it's not very much, but Dick does make an effort here to describe what it would have been like to be a child experiencing these horrors twice and, you know, to what it would mean for your development and all that kind of stuff. Now, back in the interrogation room, Jones is released and he calls an associate to pick him up. Jones thinks about his various allies in business and politics, as well as the movement he's going to begin called Patriots United. Jones's ride arrives and he sets off for his base of operations in Montana in the West. So with this, we get a time gap. Uh, chapter 7 begins in 2002. So in 2002, a bulletin is announcing Public Law 30D-954A. And this is a law forbidding any harm to the drifters landing on Earth. And it's torn down a few hours after it's posted. A red man leads a mob in a rural area. The mob operation is well organized. There's, there's communication. There's weaponry. There's scout planes, and their target of this mob is a drifter that has recently landed. And using gasoline, the mob sets fire to the drifter. Police arrive and put out the fire, but the drifter is already dead. The red-headed man feels great satisfaction in killing one of these aliens. So we have here clear fascist imagery. We got the targeting of an outsider. We got the use of violence. We got the armed militarism. We got the organization. Quote, the mob wasn't a mob either. It was a tightly organized line of dedicated men. Those Behind those men came a struggling, undisciplined crowd composed of high school boys, girls in white shorts, children wheeling bikes, and middle-aged workmen and sharp-faced housewives, dogs, and a few old people with their arms folded against the cold. For the most part, the crowd stayed behind to mind their own business. It was a line of dedicated men responding to the red-headed leader who did the actual work. And the red-headed leader was carrying on instructions relayed over a field telephone. Right, the militarist vanguard, right, the is is part of this too. So very much, Dick here is trying to give the suggestion of a fascist insurgent movement. Speaking of this, by the way, if when you read the back of this book, so I have the Mariner edition of the World Jones made. Most of mine are the old vintage with the, with the kind of ugly covers. Um, this is the Mariner ones are, are I think nicer books, but you know I already had a lot of them, so I didn't rebuy them. Um, but books I didn't ha yet have, I, I, I bought you know, in the Mariner editions when they came out. So if you're a collector of Philip Dick books, you, you might know these. I don't have any of the old versions. All my, all my versions were, are new. I'm not a collector in that sense. But here's what the back of the book says. As a fortune teller in a post-apocalyptic carnival, Jones is a powerful force and may be able to free society from its paralyzing relativism it is that if that is he can avoid the radioactively unstable government hitman on his trail so the back of the book now obviously dick didn't write that so i'm not blaming him i'm, I'm just suggesting this is being kind of mismarketed here you have the main hero of this book is cusack not jones the government hitman you know jones is not a hero either yeah, he's got a few ideas that we can sympathize with, maybe on the frontier. But he's kind of a vile figure in a lot of ways. And he's compared to Hitler in the text. We see the imagery of an insurgent fascist movement. He is an anti-democratic force. He works to seize the government through a minority uprising. And yeah, there are good reasons to question relativism. And we have Dick uses Cusack's wife, Nina, Nina to do that. She's the voice of kind of a, a reasonable criticism of relativism. But, you know, the way it's marketed, I think, is, is not quite right. Anyways, chapter eight. Doug and Nina Cusack are attending a performance of uh, The Marriage of Figaro, the opera, the Mozart opera. Showing art is not dead. Um, you know, artistic expression is still possible in this world. Cusack is particularly eager to see the performance of Don Bartolo uh, by Ghetto Talbini. So we have famous artists. So there's still kind of a cultural life. 
But he leaves the performance early, and he walks out and he sees a discarded handbill for a Jones rally. And as the crowd leaves from the opera, Doug explains to his wife that the scenery reminded him of something important. They meet Max Kaminsky outside the theater. Nina discusses her newborn son Jackie with Kaminsky, and we see that the Cusack family is growing. The situation with Jones is revealed uh, to be worsening, his movement's growing, and drifters are being killed in spite of the laws against the killing of them, and this movement, his movement is growing in power. Kaminsky realizes that the drifters are just a device for Jones to get support. He's, they're the outsiders that get targeted to kind of rally up public um, support. They stop at the Kusap home to, to tend to Jackie, the son, and Doug and Kaminsky discuss Nina's hostility towards the police and her feelings on relativism. And with the baby fed, they prepare to pick up uh, Kaminsky's date for the evening. So they're going to go off after the opera on, on essentially a double date. Now, there's an interesting thing here. The question we might ask is, why does the government go out of its way to protect these drifters, right? Because it does, the drifters are these unwanted foreigners who get targeted with violence. So even, I think, Kaminsky at one point says, like, these drifters just die when they land on Earth. They're not, you know, they don't seem to be sentient. They don't seem to be intelligent. They don't seem to do anything. They're just creatures that land, and eventually they dry out and die, right? So they're not really invaders the way... Jones talks about them. So why not, why allow this issue of the drifters to, you know, empower someone like Jones? Well, the reason it has to do with relativism, right? To judge this foreign species is an affront to relativism. So it's part of this, this overall philosophy of kind of openness and, and liberalism. I guess it's kind of a, it's almost like the ultimate of a, of a, of a liberal society. There's a lot of little points throughout the whole book actually of of just how liberal liberated this society is in a lot of ways it's almost a libertarian paradise drugs are legal nina at one point takes heroin uh, i think people don't wear clothes often it, it's kind of in personal freedom there's a lot to kind of like about relativism actually but anyway so they head off on this sort of double date um chapter nine nina Kusak, Doug Kusak, Matt Kaminsky. They arrive at the FedGov security annex, and Kaminsky enters, and he quickly returns with Tyler Fleming, who is his kind of a date. The security, she's a security researcher in the in the office. They later arrive in San Francisco. Now we got this fast transportation, and there's something Dick likes to do. You know, like you pick up people in Baltimore and you go on a date in San Francisco, right? Because transportation is so fast. They arrive at San Francisco at a club. It was once a place of vice before relativism, but now there's no vice because all these personal behaviors are, are liberated. People can sort of do what they want. So these locations all become legal. Drugs are ordered. They're consumed openly. You have these robot waiters who you know, deliver these things. The four of them discuss relativism. And Nina again expresses her hostility towards the philosophy and its applications. Now it seems... Partially what she wants to defend is, is truth. She thinks it's possible to know something. And she, she, she's offended that the government kind of rejects the idea that there can be kind of absolute rights and wrongs. And that's sort of what attracts her to Jones. And she, you start to see that her she's kind of drifting over to Jones's way of thinking about things. And this becomes a kind of a good model of, a good example of, of how... Jones is gaining support throughout the population. It's not just the people who are burning the drifters. It's it's become it's his ideas and his values, or what he represents even more thoroughly. What he represents is seeping into the public and, and kind of putting cracks into the philosophy of relativism. Kaminsky comments that relativism has really tied the hands of the security apparatus in dealing with someone like Floyd Jones. Now. On the stage at the place where they're doing this, they're, they're having these drugs and things, and it's kind of a, there's a couple that just is having sex as part of a floor show, as a floor show. And they're actually hermaphrodites that are, that can change their sex, they're mutants that can change their gender, um, kind of at will. And, and they kind of have this weird hermaphrodite sex where they're switching genders constantly. And it's kind of cool, if, you know, to, to envision. 
The women leave for the bathroom and the men continue their discussions of Jones. And, you know, this is a short novel, so you don't want to blame Dick too much for, for kind of sticking to business. But sometimes you think that's all they ever talk about whenever they get together. Um, relativism or they always talk about business, but the novel is incredibly short. So he didn't have like the space to go into more detail. All his novels kind of feel rushed that way, actually. Jones has published a book called The Moral Struggle, and this has kind of come as manifesto. Um, my struggle, my Mein Kampf and the moral struggle, uh, that's not a coincidence, I think. I think, again, Dick is making contrast between Hitler and Jones. Kaminsky reiterates that Jones is using the drifters in order to rise to power, which we already sort of know. And Fleming begins to tell her story. And her, she's got an interesting backstory. Her parents were communists in China, and her father was killed for supporting the philosophy of relativism. And so she's, she's she sees what absolutism, I'll, I'll use that as the opposite of relativism, right? Kind of that absolutism, the belief in ideological certainty. You know, it's it could be very devastating. And she's another reminder, as the war was, that maybe the relativists have a point. Nina and Doug dance, and they discuss their marital problems, which are really rooted in their philosophical differences. Cusack is a, or Doug, I mean, Doug Cusack is a company man. Uh, he believes in relativism too, and he's not going to back off on that. But we see Nina with her artistic spirit kind of drifting away from the ideological status quo. Doug begins to have doubts that their marriage can survive, but he pledges to work on it for the sake of Jackie, their newborn son. So, chapter 10. So, they're still on this double date. So, we got three chapters in this relatively short novel, essentially about a double date in San Francisco. Um, but the four of them are still on it, on this date in San Francisco. It's getting late, and the bar starts to empty. But floor shows involving these copulating couples continue. Um, Nina and Kaminsky go to the dance floor, and later Doug notices Kaminsky alone and finds Nina kind of had moved to the back of the bar with the hermaphrodite. This is these mutants who can change sex at will. And it was one of the dancers from before, one of the people that were having sex, I guess. Doug follows Nina and the hermaphrodite and eventually tracks her down and says, we got to get ready to go. And Nina explodes in rage and anger um, and tells Doug that he will stay as late as she wants if, you know, if he loves her. Doug ends up fighting with the hermaphrodite who turns into a man and it's they kind of brawl, but Nina escapes. Doug follows her and quickly finds her in a, room, in a room that she's been renting, kind of a back room. And Nina confesses that she's been using this room in this club to get away from her family life. The couple spends the night in the room and in the morning, Doug finds that the corridor connecting to Nina's secret room also adjoins a warehouse. And in there we find secret meetings of the Patriots United have been taking place. This is the militant wing of Floyd Jones' movement. So Doug has realized through this kind of discovering the secret room and, you know, it's kind of a chain of events. He realizes he knows the hermaphrodite or she knows the hermaphrodite, finds she has this room, finds the rooms connected to a secret warehouse. And this all proves that Nina's been working with Patriots United all along. Doug confronts Nina about her support for the movement, uh, and he's actually horrified to learn that's not just support, she's actually a member. But Nina tries to convince her husband that participation in this movement is risky, but it's also exciting. Doug doesn't fully realize this juxtaposition of the decadent club and the anti-relativist Jones movement. He actually is baffled by this because the club is everything that relativism was about. Personal liberty, not judging, kind of keeping your mouth closed shut about other people's personal decisions, but then you have in the back supporting Jones' movement. Uh, they embrace. It's a really touching moment, actually. Um, we get these touching moments between husbands and wives from time to time in Dick's later novels, but it's a little bit rare in his early work because so many of his relationships are troubled. And this is a troubled relationship too. But there's this really touching moment at the end of this chapter where they just know they're they're going to get divorced, and they're quite both broken up about it but a couple of things about this end of chapter 10 one is why nina wants to embrace this does she really believe in relativism or is there something else going on here she says 
It's sort of exciting, like an adventure, the two of us here and the locked door and the secrecy. Don't you agree? I mean, it's not, it's not stale routine. I get so bored, so damn tired of the same thing day after day. The drab, ordinary life, married woman with the baby, a frowsy housewife. It's not worth living. Don't you feel it? Don't you want to do something? So that's that's rather um, understandable here because we find out that Nina, who is this artist and talented and and brilliant, and one of the and in fact at one point, Cusack sort of says like she's too good for me um, earlier on the novel too. I think it's Kaminsky. But this final final scene, this is literally like halfway through the novel. He's, you know, he's holding Nina, and they realize the marriage is broke. Nina says, please, please don't leave me. And then Dick writes, but there was nothing he could do. He was slipping further and further away from him. And she was leaving him too. Locked in each other's arms, bare bodies pressed together. They were already a universe apart. Separated by a ceaseless muffled metallic drumming of a man's voice that beat against the walls from a long way off. The never ending harsh mutter of words, gestures, speeches. The untiring din of an impassioned man. End quote. So that, that ends chapter 10, and that gets us to the halfway point in the novel. So I will stop there for now, um, and I'll come back in the next episode, and we'll look at the rest of the world Jones made, the, the final 10 chapters, and then I'll try to enter into a kind of a thematic summary and some of my overall thoughts of, of this uh, nice little novel. It's, it's, I think it's a real achievement for someone was such a young writer at the time and and i like it for some of his ideas it has and some of the things it make us makes us think about so thank you so much for listening um and please keep keep listening and i'll, ha- I'll have the rest of the novel for you very shortly Come my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies.